I do want to say uh, thank you to this church for giving me this opportunity uh, to preach. Lord called me to preach, and I can't very well do that if there's nobody to listen. I thank for every opportunity I'm given. And I beg you to pray for me tonight and throughout this week coming, uh, because I can do absolutely nothing of value of my own self. And I mean that sincerely. So uh, pray for me as I try to bring this message. Pray for any lost that might be here. And to any here that are lost, even though uh, the children of God are always thrilled to be reminded of the glory of their Savior and also look for refreshing that only comes from God, times of refreshing, we have these services for that as well. I would think uh, it should be obvious that most people here want to see people get saved. Uh, It's not because of any virtue on our part. The Lord gives that to us when he saves us. We want everybody to have what the Lord has given us. And not only that, the Lord is on record as saying that he would have all men everywhere to repent. And it's by repentance that you find God. So that's as much as saying you have all people everywhere saved. And that he's not willing that any should perish. So keeping that in mind. And keeping in mind that even though it's not in my text, nor is it in the book that I hope to preach from, then the gospel according to John, I, I think it's chapter 20, uh, could be 21. Uh, John was inspired to write that these things were written that you might believe. And that believing, you have life in his name. That means that if you haven't believed and found life, you're, you're dead already and you don't even know it. Or maybe you do. Maybe the Lord has drawn you such that you're aware of your predicament. But they're written, at least the gospel according to John, and the same spirit that inspired John to write inspired all the writers to write. All that's written here and all that's preached by his preachers that he sends is so that you might believe and believing have life. That's the purpose of it. And with that (laughs) unplanned preamble, Uh, We'll turn to our text and pray for me that I have found the will of God in it. It's in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. A very familiar passage to most, but all of them are familiar to most, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) So... Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days? Or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. But they held their peace. And when he had looked, and when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the bed, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored whole as the other. 
And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Now, you know, this is talk about a miracle. There's lots of miracles talked about here. <laughs> There's lots of miracles sitting here. You're talking about to say people, that, that's a miracle. Every, every time we see it it's, it, it's a miracle, in my opinion. Because Jesus said that salvation with men is impossible. Right? That's what he says. But with God... All things are possible. Therefore, salvation is possible only through an act of God, which I would take all those to be outside of nature and therefore miraculous. He does no normal things. That's, that's outside of his character. So uh, I'll try to talk about this a little bit. So it says that Jesus entered again into the synagogue. Now, without going through the the three gospels where this is presented, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but trying to borrow from each to paint the bigger picture, uh, he, had, he had, I suppose, the, the Saturday before this, he had entered into a synagogue, and, uh, and these same, uh, the same ones that would accuse him of something, uh, accused his disciples of violating the Sabbath because they plucked off some ears of corn and ate them. Not so much eating them, but pulling off the husk probably was the, the thing that was wrong, according to them. And, and the, Lord, uh, the Lord defended what they did, and he put to shame the ignorance of the people that made the accusation. And it would seem, in that account in Matthew, that it just goes, he goes right back into the synagogue. But through reading them all, this is really another Sabbath day. And, and I say that, and I make a point of it, because Jesus was regularly in synagogues on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was the day that was set aside by God for man, uh, in which it is to be remembered that after having created all that there is, God himself rested on the Sabbath day. And he sanctified the day and he made it holy. And not getting into you know, uh, what, what day the Sabbath ought to be or whatever. You know, we're taught in the New Testament and, you know, particularly uh, in the, uh, in the uh, later uh, epistles that uh, every day is essentially the same. Okay, however, if there is something that corresponds to it, we make it Sunday for the most part. And we should be in church. If we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to be in church when the doors are open, that's what we do because that's what he did. And he did it because it, it ought to be done because it pleases God to be done. You're going to find Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath doing what he always does, which is good things. And he was here and he had an opportunity to do good. And it says, uh, and in Matthew it says, uh, behold. Okay, behold, there came in a man with a withered hand. And I know preachers have told you this, but it's always worth noting. In the Bible, particularly here in the Gospels, when it says behold about something Jesus is about to do, that's like a signpost hung out there for us to understand where the focus of our Lord's attention has gone. It's gone to the bed with a withered hand. He wasn't worried about what the Pharisees might find in him to accuse. He wasn't worried about, about truly anything. Once that man came in, that man was our Lord's attention. And that's worth noting because there may be lost people here that think that Jesus takes no notice of them. But that is mistaken. We read where he, uh, he leaves the 99 sheep that are in the fold. And he goes out seeking after that one lost sheep. And he seeks until he finds our Lord is maximum attentive to the lost, particularly to the lost that, that have somehow or other softened their hearts such to where they have begun to seek after him in some way, at least think about it, at least maybe pray some about it. Because if you draw an eye to him, he's right there to draw an eye to you. 
So if our Lord is attentive to a man with a withered hand that walked into a synagogue on a Sabbath day, lest our minds eyes do the same thing. I'm not very imaginative, but thankfully Mark paints a very clear picture of what's going on. And with a little bit of help from the, from the other, uh, the other two gospels, we can try to set it. But, uh, so it's a Sabbath, a man walks in with a withered hand and it, uh, you know, and it says, behold it. So we need to pay attention. He says, and they watched him. Now the day that they're talking about is the Pharisees. It says the Pharisees and, and later down the Herodians. So there's There's actually quite a combination of people in Israel at this time that are against our Lord. Uh, The priests, particularly the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, ultimately the Romans, you know, maybe the least of them, you know, least guilty would be them. It's as though the whole world was conspiring against the Lord Jesus, who was meek and gentle and kind Never did harm, except to an olive tree that he cursed. I think that's the only harm he ever did. But he was here to do good. He said, I'm not come to judge the world, but to save it. Thank God for that. And so, uh, I'm dragging, I don't mean to. So there's a combination there and... And in these people's mind, his, his enemies, all they're doing is looking for something whereby they could accuse him. And they know good and well what it's going to be. He's going to heal somebody on the Sabbath day. I used to think because there's so many people he healed on the Sabbath day that he just went out on Sabbath days particular to, to heal people. But I've thought again about that. And I just think he was healing so many people. He was showing so much mercy in this world that just like every day, he treated it the same. And maybe he preferred it because it was a day set aside by God for godly doings. You know, when uh, Matthew, when the, the incident with the, the corn and his disciples being accused by these same people, uh, he let them know that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath was made for man And most particularly, the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns over the Sabbath. He he bends it to His will. It is is what He says it is. Whatever that is, Jesus has got to be right about it. You know, we we hear the stories of royalty. We don't know much about it here in this country, thankfully. (laughs) But but, uh, how how the royalty or the makers of manners... So is our Lord Jesus Christ and his royalty. He, he sets the standards and he illuminates the truth of all things. He is Lord of the Sabbath and he does just exactly what he wills on it. And what he wills, of course, is always perfectly correct. Now, they're watching him and now in comes this man and we're beholding him and he's got a withered hand. And I don't know how many of you have seen people with a withered hand. It does not explain. Most people assume that he had a paralysis in his hand. It doesn't mention his whole arm, even though the whole arm typically would be affected. But it's not always through paralysis. Uh, when I was in the army, I had uh, one of my first uh, commanders, the one I had for the longest period of time, uh, he had a withered hand. And uh, it was from arthritis and I think a shrinking of the sinews. His arm wasn't messed up, but his hand was, was like this. He was getting up there in years. He was about to retire, and, and he was a conductor of, of a band that I was in. I was in an army band early on. And he'd hold the baton up here, and, and he'd conduct more or less. He didn't have the, the fine use of his hands. He was using his whole arm. And so, uh, but I remember Mr. Smith, who had the withered hand, because we, sorry for the aside, but it, it might be illustrative here. In that band, we played lots of ceremonies. Retirement ceremonies, change of command ceremonies, promotion ceremonies, ceremonies. And they were all conducted pretty much according to, you know, uh, standard operating procedures. It, it, they were predictable. And, uh, and so he knew when he stood in front of the band that there would come times when he would do a salute. When they call for a salute, he would salute for the whole band because he was its commander. But yet his salute would look like this unless he did something about it. Well, trombones were on the front rank, so I always saw everything Mr. Smith did. And he had his back to us, and he was looking towards uh, the podium up there. And as he knew 
there was a requirement for his hand to be straight so he could salute. I'd see him like this. He'd, he'd be working on his fingers and he'd be drawing them up and down his pants trying to straighten them out because he couldn't do it on its own. He'd get them straight and he'd hold it there against his leg until they said, hand salute. And, and he'd bring it up. And then he'd just start curling up. And before, you know, if they, if they left it very long, his hand would be just right back where it was. A withered hand. I think it's in Luke that we find that the hand was his right hand. The reason it mentions that must be because he was right-handed, or otherwise it probably had been no mention. Most people, well, maybe more, the majority of people are right-handed. If you're right-handed and your hand doesn't work, it makes it even worse, you know, that that's the hand that was afflicted. Very likely he could not engage in certain crafts that required the use of a hand. Perhaps it lowered his standard of living Lord is income. I don't know. We can speculate. But just having the withered hand is bad enough. Now, there's worse things out there than a withered hand. And the Lord dealt with those too. I mean, like being dead. He dealt with that. You know, there was no more problem from him than the other one was. But, uh, but it's a problem for this man. And the Lord had mercy. He always does. And so, uh, so he's there and he's got this withered hand. And it's noticeable. Probably his neighbors go to the same. He probably goes to the same synagogue. He's just there. It doesn't say that he came there because he knew Jesus was there. Sometimes people come for that reason. But he was there and the Lord was there. Uh, The people of the synagogue were there. It was a Sabbath day. You would think, hey, we've got this guy that heals everybody. And and here's our neighbor with with a withered hand. You know, we... I wonder if he'll heal his hand. Wouldn't that be glorious if, if, if the Lord would just heal his hand right here in front of us and we could see our neighbor restored to a health that perhaps he never had before. We don't know how long his hand had been withered. But no, that's not at all what was going on here. What was going on here is these enemies of God, because they're enemies of Christ, and Christ is God, uh, they are... Their hearts are so hardened against Christ that they're only looking for him to heal this man so they can accuse him. And and hard-heartedness is bad. I I don't know how else to say it. It's it's bad. We touched on it Wednesday during the devotional. Uh, There's a a passage. I think I, I don't know. I'll put it down here somewhere. I'll probably never find it. Oh, yeah. I'll put a sticky note. It's talking about his own disciples. When Jesus had, uh, had fed the 5,000, not counting women and children. And it says, uh, he sent them ahead on a boat. It's in Mark uh, chapter 6. And he says, and then he came to them walking on the sea. And there was a huge windstorm. And the, and the Sea of Galilee is known for it. So there were these huge waves that are caused by the wind. So the wind's causing waves and they're all terrified. And he just walks on past them all, starts to on the, on the sea. Of course, that's no problem for him. And he says, uh, they saw him walking on the sea and they supposed it was a, a ghost, a spirit. And they, they cried out, you know, in fear. But uh, it says, for they saw him. And, and then immediately he, he talked with them. And he always, when people are scared, he, he'll say to his disciples, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. You know, I think about those sayings, uh, you know, like when, uh, when it was Isaiah, I believe, in the sixth chapter, and he sees uh, a vision of heaven, and he sees God lifted up on a throne, and his train filling the whole house, and, and he just falls down, and he cries because he's a man of unclean lips, and someone touches him. He says, fear not. <laughs> Good thing that God has mercy on us in times like that. Sometimes when we get close to God, we tremble from that. There's an old spiritual about that. Sometimes it causes me, and it does. Sometimes in prayer. Sometimes in study. You just tremble. That's the holiness of God. While you're cognizant of your own sin. But anyway, uh, he, uh, he tells him not to be afraid. And he went into the ship. 
and the wind ceased. Another account, it says he, he rebuked the wind. You know, he, he told it to stop. And it says here then, when, he, when the wind stopped, it says they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure. <laughs> you could not quantify how scared they were. Now, they were afraid of the wind. They were afraid of the waves. But when Jesus rebuked the wind and it ceased and the waves ceased, they were terrified. Now, think about that. They should have expected that. And, and the Bible bears that up because it says in verse 51, and he went unto them. Uh, well, anyway, it says they were sore amazed uh, in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, which had just happened. He, they had just seen him feed a multitude out of what? Two fish and three or five loaves or something. Okay, At Five loaves and two fishes. Huge multitude. They should have thought, this is God. This is God. This is obviously, this is God and God can do anything. But instead, they're terrified at the power of a man that can control the elements of this world. And it says, they considered not the miracles of the low because their heart was hardened. And I talked about this a little bit Wednesday. I don't want to bore the ones that were here, but see, we disciples of Christ very frequently, if you're like me, have a hard heart. <laughs> we do. We have hard hearts because we, we fail to remember the glory days when he, uh, when he saved us, when he saved our family, when he, when he, when he brought himself into a, a house of worship and, and people began to shout and, and the spirit freed our hearts and, and time of refreshing came from the presence of the Lord in the Lord's house, in the Lord's people's hearts. And we knew that God could do anything. We forgot it. And our hearts are hard. We don't expect it. And because we don't expect it, it is unlikely to happen because he, he disagrees with hard hearts. We should understand of the God that saved us that not only can he save, but he desires to save. Not only can he help or can he heal, but he desires to do all those things in his wisdom for his people. One day, It'll all be clear when we're in a new world and, and it's nothing but, well, I don't know what it is, but there'll be no tears and no sorrow and, and no sickness and no death and, and no sin because he says, uh, we will be raised incorruptible. It's not talking about just our flesh. It's talking about we cannot have the corruption of sin. We won't be like Adam restored because Adam was capable of sin. When we're raised in, in the resurrection uh, unto life, well, there'll never be another sin. We won't be jealous of each other. We won't, we, <laughs> I, just, I can't even imagine myself without sin, but, but I will be without sin. And I'm way off from what I'm talking about, but hard hearts. Let's remember Let's not have hard hearts. Let's not have hard hearts this week. If we want people to be saved, we need to believe just like they need to believe. We saints need to believe that God will have mercy this week. That he will save this week. And you lost people, you, you had best believe it. You'll never pass from death unto life if you cannot trust the Lord God. I know it's a gift. Maybe we'll talk about that soon. I'll try to get back to my text. And so, uh, so here we are. These people are looking for, they have a hard heart. And I think it's in Luke, might be in Matthew, where it says he, he told, here it just says he told them to stand forth. But in there he says he took them and he put the man right in the middle. So right in the middle of the synagogue. So, so everybody, so this is a big behold. That was then and it's now. We need to see a synagogue full of people like a church. And, and he's right in the middle so that everybody can see him. So that his detractors, those who would accuse, will see just exactly what he does. <laughs> and then he says, and he looks upon him. It says, he, he asks him a question. 
And so he's in the middle. The man's in the middle. He says unto these that would accuse him. And in, in, uh, in one of the gospels, it says, I'm going to ask you one thing. Just one question. Now, normally they're asking him questions, but he's, he's going to ask them a question. Just one thing. A simple thing. A simple thing that just should utterly shatter their hard heart. But it doesn't. He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? Okay. Now, what a question. How do you answer that? The answer is obvious. No one has to say it. But, but they won't say it, okay, because of the hardness of their heart. Uh, and you know, notice there's no shades of gray there. You either do good or you do, that's the two options in, in God's language. Uh, it's either light or it's darkness. It's either death or it's life. It's either sin or it's righteousness. It, there's no shades of gray with him. You're, you're either for him or you're against him. You're either uh, gathering with him or you're scattering abroad. You, you can't have the middle ground with our Lord. You have to be sold out to him or you won't. You'll never find what you're looking for from God. You cannot serve. Though we try, you cannot serve God and mammon. Let's remember that this week. He says, uh, well, which is it? That's essentially what he, which is it? What would you have me do? You want me to do something good on a Sabbath day? Or you want me to do something evil? Which is it that you think I ought to do? Well, they know they can't answer. They can't resist the logic and the, and the profound, obvious truth of what the answer is. Neither will they yield and say so. That's what hard-hearted people are like. They just buckle up. They won't say a thing. They resist. And no doubt the Holy Ghost was working on them too. Jesus wanted them to be saved. And we read where our first martyr, other than the Lord himself, Stephen, said... Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Now, if you're lost out there, and you believe that God is, and you believe that Jesus is God, and you believe that he saved people, you're way ahead of where I was when I was your age, okay? Uh, and for many decades afterwards, but if you're still lost, there's, there's something in you that's resisting a work of God. Because if, if you have been brought to the point of, of believing in God and desiring salvation to some degree, yet somehow you're resisting the actions of the Spirit on your heart, and you need to yield. You need to lay it all down. You need to set aside all things. Don't worry about everything you're thinking about. Think about nothing except the Lord helping you. And he did this man. So he asked the question. There's another question that he asked. It may be important. Uh, it's in Matthew. So it's at the same event. It's just not recorded by Mark. He says this, I think to shame them. I doubt they shamed, but it was an effort. What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if he fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? Now, see, they were probably in the habit of doing that. Did you know a few years later, they changed the Talmud, okay, which they could change that all they wanted to, I guess, because they wrote it, until they said, it's not even lawful to do that. You can't pull your animals out of the ditch, probably because Jesus brought this up. Now, think about that. They just added to the strictures, the illegitimate uh, extra laws that they made about the Sabbath day. But listen to this. So he says, uh, that's also an obvious question. If, 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 you're, if, you're, if your sheep falls in a ditch, it says, are you going to pick it up out? Are you just going to let it die there? You know? And of course they know they're going to pull it out of the ditch because that's what they do. It's probably happened. But here's what I liked about it. He says, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Now, we live in a world that have more compassion on dumb animals than they do on people. They have more, more compassion. On, you know, they, they, would, they would think it would be horrible to kill a rattlesnake. It's illegal in a lot of states. It may be a federal law not to kill a, a rattlesnake, of all things, and things that are dangerous. But they have no problem killing babies in the womb. 
You know. How much better is a bed than a sheep? And you know, when the Lord talks about this, but in another way, he talks about the other parts of his creation, some of them. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not. They don't do a thing. They, neither do they spend. They're not, they're not working. They're not earning their way like we all feel like we got to do. He says, yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. Who's doing the arraying of these lilies of the field? God is. He's taking care of things. And, and he's wanting us to understand that we're more important to him than the lilies are. And sparrows, you know, sparrows, so many for a farthing, they're essentially worthless, you know. And yet, you're worth a lot more than a sparrow, he says. You're worth more than many sparrows. That's something that, if you're lost, take that to heart. God loves sparrows. There's not a single one of them that falls to the ground, but what? He's aware of it. It's what the Bible tells us. But he... uh he says, you're worth way more than a few of them. You're worth many sparrows, more than many. Take hope. <laughs> the Lord loves you too. He counts you as something valuable. He, uh, he humbled himself and made himself to be of no reputation. He took upon himself a, a lowly estate. And he suffered And he died hard to save you. Indeed, you're worth more than sparrows and sheep and and lilies of the field. And yet he takes care of all these things. Why would you doubt that the Lord would save you? Why would you let the hardness of a heart that God didn't harden it? Where did that come from? Where did it ask yourself? Why can I not fully trust God who spared not his own son but gave him up so that we could be saved? Back to Mark. Which is it going to be, good or evil? They held their peace. And so he says he looks around upon them with anger. I don't read, now he may have been angry otherwhere, but I don't, I don't read where, and maybe brothers that know more than me can tell me, I don't remember reading where Jesus ever displayed, well, he drove people out of the, he drove out the money changers twice at the temple, but it doesn't say his face showed, I don't know. Here, his face must have shown the anger. He's looking around, I bet he's looking at every single one of those folks that are looking to accuse him because he's right in the center He's looking around, waiting for an answer that never comes. And anger shows on his face. That may not mean much. If you're lost, it ought to mean a lot. The Bible tells us of a day that's coming in which his look of anger will be revealed to the whole world. All flesh will see it together. It's found in, uh, in the book of Revelation... And it's, uh, it's chapter 6, reading in verse 15. says, And the king, so judgment comes. The, the, the heavens roll back like a scroll, and the heavenly bodies are all upset, and, 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 and the, whole, the whole first creation is, is, is disintegrating. It's coming apart. That's what's going to happen one day. Maybe one day soon. And it says, uh, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And he said to the mountains, and they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Another word for anger, extreme anger. Jesus is going to be displaying his extreme wrath and anger upon sinners who, in contradiction to all things logical, have made themselves his enemy when he's the only hope they ever had. 
can't remember. I'm not very good with scripture, but there's a place where he talks about men will seek death and it will flee from them. They won't be able to die. Think about the people in hell. In the lake of fire eventually when it's cast in there. Oh, how they would, how they would long to die. The rich man, after his body was buried, lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torments. And he says, I'm tormented in these, in these flames. I believe there's flames because the rich man was there, is there. He just wanted any mercy. What would he have given for that? I mean, but there is none. What would he have given to just disappear? To just cease to exist? What would he have given if the Lord would just annihilate him and he's gone? A lot of people think that's all there is to hell. Jesus didn't believe that. He never said such a thing. He says the worm dies not. The fire's not quenched. Now that's a place that was prepared for the devil. But he'll put sinners in there that die in their sins. That's the reason he pleads with people not to die in their sins. We all sin. But to die in your sins is going to wind you up in a place that you cannot escape the judgment of God. Anyway, he looks on these people. He's angry. He says he's angry being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. So here we have anger and grief is, is great sorrow. So here, his face is showing anger. His heart is grieving because of the hardness of their hearts. Because he knows, even though he's angry with them, he knows that if they don't change, if they don't soften in their attitude towards him, they'll die in their sins. I remember a place in John where right before, he, the very week he's crucified, he's in the temple having his last say with these folks. He's doing all that he can for them. But he finally says, I'm going to go and you're going to seek me and you won't be able to find me and you'll die in your sins. I took it as a prophecy. He knew them all, he says, and he knows the future. He could, I mean... He, he may have set aside some omniscience when he was in the flesh, but he also had presentiments and, and revelations to the Spirit because he had it without limit, without measure. He had all the Spirit. He knew those people were going to wind up in hell. He knew so many in Jerusalem would wind up in hell that he, he wept over it repeatedly. Is he weeping over somebody here? God forbid no reason for anybody to die that way because they got a savior that loves them but we need to lay aside our hardness of heart and like i say not even thinking rightly about jesus actions as in the the miracle of the loaves if we try to limit him to doing certain things certain ways and all that kind of stuff and then it doesn't happen to our expectation that's that is symptomatic of a hard heart we need to think of jesus like he is he's He's a miracle walking the earth with all the power of God, the, the whole Godhead bodily dwelling within his flesh. God in him reconciling the world unto himself. I mean, Jesus is, well, I mean, he's unique. There's nothing like him. Never will be anything like him. I can't wait to see him. I've seen him in my heart, but it's not the same. It's not to the degree I want. I don't have to worry. I will. I believe I will. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, I'll try to get back on track. I'm taking too long. He says, uh, he looked around him, uh, you know, with anger, being grieved at the hardness out of his hearts. And he said unto the man, stretch forth uh, thine hand. And he stretched it out. Now think about this. <clears throat> what did Jesus tell this guy to do? He told him to do the one thing he could not do. His hand was withered. If he could stretch out his hand, there'd be no problem. He would not have a withered hand, but with a withered hand, he, he just couldn't do it. It was impossible for him to do it. It's like when he talked about, you know, uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a, a camel going through the eye of the needle. It's not talking about through some tiny passage in the world. It's talking about a needle. And, and so, because that's what the apostles say. He says, well, who could be saved? And he says, with men, it is impossible. It's impossible. You can't be saved. 
But with God, all things are possible. He told that man to do the impossible, and he did it. Now, this is kind of why this whole subject came about upon my heart. Um, and I'm not saying this uh, in a way of criticism to anybody who may be here, okay? But I've been to lots of the churches. I mean, we just moved here, so I'm going to church after church and revival after revival, except if I catch the red death or something. I'm, I'm out and I'm trying to go to churches. And uh, I have heard this. And, and I may have said it myself at times. I mean, I, I'm guilty of all things, trust me. And it's like, a, you know, we say what comes to mind sometimes when we're up here preaching. But I've heard several preachers say something like this. Uh, there's nothing you can do. You know, what they mean by that is you can't save yourself. Then they'll say, well, there's nothing I can do. And what they mean by that is I can't save you. Well, there's nothing your mother and father can do. And what they mean by that is your mother and father can't save you. But we need to be really clear what we're talking about because there is something that all three of those categories can do. Now, preachers that God has called, uh, they can do something. They can do something. They can't save you, but they can preach the gospel. And and Paul was adamant about that. He says, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, he's not saying so much the preaching, but really it is because he tells us what the power of God is. He tells us what, what the, uh, the gospel is. If we look at first Corinthians 15, he says, you know, it's the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And that is what we're supposed to preach. And that's what Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. And so it is in connection with preaching. Why does he do that? Why does, it says it pleased God when in the wisdom of the, or let's say, uh, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of, you know, Paul kind of talks that way. It gets me really confused. I have to spend a long time just dissecting a sentence and trying to make sense out of it. It's deep though, kind of. God is so smart. This is how I'd rephrase it in, in, in ordinary sunken English. God is so wise that he knows that, that, that people should not be allowed to come to heaven just because they're smart and they understand things intellectually. He wants people up there who have, who have had a, a change within them, who have been born again, who have been converted I mean, and by conversion, it's not just talking about changing from one religion to another. I'm thinking about a, a, a fundamental change in the creature that's worked by God. And so he's, he says, I won't have a person who, who just understands all the doctrines like the Pharisees did. Like so many in churches today that probably aren't saved do. They can, I've heard people uh, quote the whole book uh, of John. I mean, uh, yeah, it was John. No, it was Romans. A guy would get up and recite like three chapters every Sunday at a church I went to. If you asked him to explain it, he couldn't get anywhere with it, but he could quote it. They understood these things, but he says, that's not how you get saved. See, it's, but, he said, but it's by the foolishness of preaching. A preacher should never say, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> He's given us what to do. He's told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that's what we try to do. And he wouldn't have us do that if it were not profitable. He would not have, I don't believe he would have us do that if he had elected people from the foundations of the earth to be saved and there's nothing that can be done one way or the other. Why would he waste, why would he have us waste our time that way? I just don't believe it. I know, (laughs) I'd love to talk about that sometime, but that's not the purpose of this. I want anyone here who may have thought and I hear some of this too, thought that, uh, that God has so ordered our lives that basically it's just all set. It's all written. Because a lost person is going to be thinking, well, if it's all written, it'll just happen or it won't happen. You know, that's a, that's a really dangerous thing to think. Okay. So just as preachers, there's something we can do. And, and, and parents, there's something we can do. I prayed for my children to get saved and I never stopped until they did. 
And that I haven't stopped yet thanking God for having done it. I had wasted my life. My children grew up with a father that, that was an atheist. And I was filled with shame and, and, and fear that so much precious time had been lost. And it was that I prayed to God that he had saved my family. And he did. He did. There's something we can do. He tells us to pray for people. That's something. God hears our prayers. We should do it. We can't save you, but we can pray. And you know, there's something the lost person can do too. In fact, there's things the lost person must do. He says, in the times of this ignorance, this is what Paul said on, on Mars Hill, the times of this ignorance, uh, God winked at. And I'm not going to go into what ignorance that was. Really, it's ignorance of God is what it was. And he says, he used to wink at that, but, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Okay? God commands you to repent. Je- you know, uh, Jesus said that, that God, that he knew God, and God had a commandment. And he said the commandment is everlasting life. Now, I don't know if that means that he was commanding uh, Jesus to, to bring in everlasting life for the world, because he certainly did. But I think the commandment is to us. Uh, if we look at Ezekiel chapter 16, he, he talks about us, that he was there in the day of our nativity out in some uh, waste howling wilderness where, where someone had cast us out to the loathing of our persons. Uh, they did not uh, wipe the blood. They didn't wash us. They didn't supple us. They did not swaddle us in anything. But we were cast out to the despising of our person and the loathing of the people. I mean, it was, he said, and I came upon you when you were like that. While you were in your blood, and I looked upon you, no doubt with compassion. Because <laughs> that's one of his most endearing attributes. You won't find him without it. Now, when he comes back, he won't have it. It's too late. But, well, he'll have it. But he'll also have another attribute, which is wrath and judgment, which is also good. It's all good, but not always good for us. Okay, so, so let's put things where they go. Jesus is compassionate to an extreme level. He, he says, all manner of sin and blasphemy is forgiven unto men. All sin and blasphemy. Think about that. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you've ever done or can do. Except one thing. And he's talking about the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which Jesus didn't talk about at that point. But I think it's connected with a hard heart. I think it's the same thing. The, the spirit working and working on you and you've hardened yourself such that you're like these Pharisees that Jesus knew they were going to die in their sins. See? And so he was grieved in his heart. But now, with respect to being saved, and I'll end this, he commands you to be saved. He commands you to repent. And in a sense, you know, we talk about belief, and no doubt, you know, you got to believe. But he says we're saved by grace through faith, and that, the faith, not of yourselves, It's a gift of God. So he's got to give you the gift of faith. So a sinner might think, well, okay, I'm just going to sit around and wait for him to give me the gift of faith. You'll be sitting a long time. You'll be sitting a long time. Uh, Because he's also commanded you to repent. And repentance also was granted unto us Gentiles. That's also a gift. But see, with the commandment to stretch out his withered hand came the power from God to do the thing. Now, that's a fact. When, when Jesus uh, draws you to himself, and he said he would, he said, uh, the most terrifying thing I've ever read, he says, and I. This is like less than 24 hours probably before he was in the garden praying. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth. Now, you talk about predestination. Now, if there was anything predestined, it was Christ's life. And what he did, every step was ordered. He never said a word that he didn't get from the Father. Jesus was programmed, if you will, for his whole life of his ministry here on earth. And yet right before he was crucified, he said, and I, he didn't say when I'm lifted up. He said, if I'm lifted up. 24 hours later, finds him in the garden praying to God. He says, Father, all things are possible unto you. If it be possible, let this cup pass. 
And we read in Hebrews where he says that he, uh, that he poured out his heart, I'm paraphrasing, uh, to his father. And, uh, you know, he was pleading, you know, uh, with, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Let's talk about Gethsemane. And that's exactly what he's praying. Let this cup pass. He didn't want to become sin. The Holy One becomes sin. I mean, he knew it was supposed to happen, but, but to have it happen. He got a taste of that in Gethsemane. He began to sweat blood in Gethsemane. I think he entered into the, the heart of the earth at Gethsemane. That's where we get our three days. That's my opinion. He's, he's, in, the, he's in the heart of the earth, which is what? The human condition. He had been human, but he had been without sin. And now the sins of the world are beginning to be laid upon the scapegoat by the Father. And he's beginning to sweat blood and pour out his, his holy blood. And I believe it's holy. The Bible teaches that. For sinners. Anyway, I'm getting off track. When Jesus commands you to repent. You know, people, they, they talk about it. In the church I grew up in, so-called church. They said it's just a change of mind. Or is it about face? You're, you're going this way and then you turn around and you're going that way. No. <laughs> Repentance is more than that. If you just change your mind, well, that's a mental thing. And he says, you're not going to be saved by that kind of wisdom. It's talking about turning from everything that you've been in and turning to God. Really. So that when Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's a call to repent. That's what he means. Come to me. He says, I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Just, just come to me. Now, have you ever thought, lost sinner, why, that that's what you're really supposed to do? You've got to come to him. That's what he says. He says, look at me. Look at me and, look, look at me and be ye saved all the ends of the world because I am God and there is none else. There's only one name given unto heaven whereby we must be saved. When Jesus commands you to look, you can look. When he commands you to come, you can come. You can say, well, how can I go up? You don't have to go up. You don't have to go up to bring him down. You don't have to go down to bring him up. He's everywhere. That's why it was convenient that he go away because the spirit came and through the spirit, he reaches Everybody on earth, they will have him. He's talking about knocking at the door. That means he's knocking upon your heart, if you will. He, he wants to enter. He wants, and I'm not trying to paint him as helpless. He's not helpless at all. But by the love that he has for sinners, he wants to save you. But the hardness and impenitence of your heart is preventing it. You need to become soft-hearted towards Christ. You need to... You need to believe in a miracle-working God. Uh, you know, you don't need to listen to the garbage about millions of years. There's never been a million years. Never will be a million years, I don't believe. I know there hasn't been one yet because the first day was about 6,000 years ago. And there's coming a day when he's going to say there's not going to be any more time. It's going to be set between those two, the, the, the beginning and the end terminus. So they'll tell you millions of years, and I'm telling you that's a lie. You need to get over that. I don't, I don't assess to that. I, I just... I just agree with the scripture and it gives us a timeline. We've been here around 6,000 years. And I shouldn't have got off on that. I'm sorry. But it offends me to hear people, particularly those who ought to know better, talking about, that are agreeing with, with some, some guy about evolution or whatever or about geology. And, and the facts don't bear it out. And the scripture preaches against it. We need to trust God and to know that, that he is on our side. And that when he tells you uh, to look into me and be ye saved, you can look into him and be saved. You, don't, you, 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 you cannot do it. It's impossible for you on your own, but you won't be on your own. He says the word, and of course Christ is the word. The word is nigh thee, even in, in thy mouth and in thy heart that you can... But you can do it. You can, he's right there. He, you, it's just amazing how close he is. When I was uh, in the very worst condition uh, of sin, 
and, and was despairing that I would never be saved. I just, I was just, I was just sure that I'd learned about it too late. I would just never be saved. And why well, just a second later, I was saved. He was that close, that close. I think it's almost always that way is when you reach, when you reach that point in which there's nothing else but the salvation and the mercy of God. That's when it comes. That's how, because, you know, did he not give all that he had for you? Then what little we have, we need to give it all for him. He says, deny yourself. Deny your, man, that's hard for a human being to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Do you think that means pick up a, a wooden cross? I don't think so. People walk around with them sometimes. It means die. Taking up a cross means to die to this world. It's not a physical death, even though that's coming, but uh, it's dying to your own affections and lust and whatever, the desires of your heart and, and living unto God. And I'm... Uh, I'm really spent. I can't think of anything else. Well, there was a passage. I, I just saw that I was closing the book. I want you to know something. People would probably think I'm wrong. I've heard preachers that are smarter than me tell me I'm wrong when I first mentioned it years ago. But I still think, I think this means this. Jesus is compassionate. And he knows that when he condemns a lost world to everlasting punishment, that it's righteous. And he must do that which is right. A right scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He, everything he does is right. Everything he did, everything he'll ever do is right. Including healing that man with a withered hand. But you know, uh, it says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And there's a passage in Jeremiah 13. And I think it's talking about a person who, uh, who has resisted God. And they're lifted up in pride and they won't hear him and they die that way. I want you to hear this and you can, you can judge for yourself. But I just want you to know something about the heart of our Savior. Jeremiah 4, or 13 verse 15, he says, Hear ye and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God because he, uh, before he calls darkness... Give glory to the Lord your God before he calls darkness uh, and before your feet stumble upon the mountains. This is talking about before you get in trouble like dying or him coming back. And while ye look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. So what he's saying is give ear and listen before it's too late. That's how I would take that. But then in verse 17, but if you will not hear, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. There'll be no tears in our eyes. And he will be uh, anointed with the, the, the oil of gladness above his fellows, but yet... He says in secret places he'll weep. I think that means, I think that's our Lord. I think there's some grief in his heart. He was grieved at these people because of the hard and impenitent heart. Even though he was looking angry with them and he meant it. And that's how he is with us. If you're lost, he has every right to be angry with you because he's given you everything you've ever had. Every breath of air. Every piece of food gave you your parents. They gave you your clothes. Yeah, you could. No, we bought the <laughs> all these things come down from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. Every good thing that's ever happened to you, and some bad things maybe, He brought about for your good. He has every right to expect you to repent, and He's commanded you to. Don't ever think if a pre preacher like myself gets up and, and says, "Well, there's." Nothing I can do. Nothing you can do. You know, that's all. All that means is you can't save yourself by, by good living. You can't save yourself by high intellectual capacity or knowledge of scripture. It takes God to save you, but there's things you can do and you got to do. Who else did he tell 
uh, to do. So, so he came to a little girl that had just died. And what did he tell her? He says, Talitha, kumi, it means maid arise. And up she comes. Okay. And, and, and to the, uh, uh, the widow of Nain's son, he touched the beard. And he, he says, young man, rise. And, and he just gets up and starts talking. <laughs> okay. Uh, he, he talks to those, uh, uh, a leper come and he says, you know, if you will, you can make me clean. He says, I will be thou clean. And he was made clean. Uh, when Jesus says, do it, you can do it. Yeah. You can't do it without him. You have to wait for him to, to do it for you, but you need to try with all your heart to obey the commandments of God, particularly as it, re, as it respects the salvation of your soul. Be saved tonight is what the old song says. You know, be saved, oh, tonight. There's no reason to delay. And I've, I've worn out your patience. God bless you. And, you know, I'll echo what Brad said. There's no need to wait. If you ever, in the course of this, feel a need to pray, pray. Pray right then. He, he may just pass on by if, you, if your hard heart says, I'm going to wait till it's over and I'll get up there. You may not come. And even if you do, he may, not, he may not hear you when he's working on your heart. Right where you are, just pray with all your heart and you'll find him. I mean, somebody like me got saved. I know you can. God bless you.